Well, let's go ahead and get going today. Uh, I want to go probably for about 45 minutes or, or so, and I can see the, the foods out there, and there, there is uh, smoked uh, pulled pork uh, out there with some uh, apple jalapeno uh, sauce on it. So, um, All right. Uh, in, in, in thinking about what we may talk about kind of for this uh, last one for the uh, semester, I was kind of thinking really about what it is that we have been doing. I have, I've said uh, a variety of times, both in this setting and to other people that might be listening in, and we have a number of people that follow on podcasts, uh, or they just want to find out about this class. They're intrigued by this class. And I keep trying to say that we have such a unique opportunity here. This is a different setting that's not readily available in, in a lot of places to be able to take an hour and a half to go as slow as we want to go and in depth as we want to go without trying to fit into a, a quick curriculum uh, bounded by a semester or a year like we are doing gospel doctrine. So I'm always very grateful for what we do together, you know, that I'm able to study, you come prepared, and we're able to have great discussions a lot more in depth than we would normally be able to do. This is remarkable, and it's unusual. Uh, now, with that said, though, like I've mentioned before, I think that puts an onus on us. I think it puts a responsibility on th this privilege, if you will, that we have an opportunity, we learn something. The question is, as, as uh, Boyd K. Packer used to say, therefore what? What do you do with this knowledge when you walk it back out there and you're going, what do I do with that knowledge sitting in a gospel doctrine class? What do I do with this knowledge in Relief Society discussion? Uh, if we really are kind of pushing back on some things and trying to understand better, um, I, I, like, I like, there's a couple of uh, quotes here. Uh, this is a quote uh, from, uh, I think it was about the 14th century, but it was intriguing to B.H. Roberts as he was studying this. Uh, here's the quote. Then I'll read B.H. Roberts' quote. Disciples are of two sorts. There are first disciples pure and simple. They expound and defend and ward off foes and live and die faithful to one formula. Uh, and and these are the these are really really good people that just hang on to the gospel and move forward and we're blessed. On the other hand, there are disciples of a second sort. The seed that the sower strews in their fields springs up in their soil and bears fruit, thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. Disciples of the second sort cooperate in the works in the spirit and help lead it to a truer expression. That's, that's heavy. Uh, but he's saying, on the other hand, the disciples of the second sort, the seed, the knowledge, the understanding that lands in their minds, the fields of their mind, springs up and bears fruit. And that means we think about it and we walk through it and we learn and we gain more knowledge and, and it grows in us because we've nourished that seed. And I really have believed for a long time, this is, you guys are disciples of the second sort. You're here and when knowledge lands in your mind, you think about it and you dig and you read more and you, you want to understand. Uh, and then, like he says, then you cooperate in the works of the Spirit uh, and help lead it to a truer expression. Uh, this is what B.H. Roberts' challenge was to the saints of his time, and I would extend this challenge to us that are in this class. Mormonism calls for disciples of the second sort. Disciples who will not be content with merely repeating some of the truths, but will develop its truths and enlarge it by that development. Okay? The disciples of Mormonism growing discontented with the necessarily, this may sound a little harsh, 
The disciples of Mormonism growing discontented with the necessarily primitive methods which have hitherto prevailed in sustaining the doctrine will cast them in new formulas again cooperating in the works of the spirit until they help to give the truths received a more forceful expression. Okay? Now, let that sit on your brain for a second, then I want to get your reaction to that. What is B.H. Roberts saying? Right? Right? <laughs> There's a foreshadowing of a President Nelson. Yeah, I'm going to talk about him in a, in a second. Yeah, good to have you guys here. It is ongoing. It is ongoing. We had another hand? Oh, I was just, uh, we learn line upon line. So as we grow, more truths are going to be revealed to us, and we need to accept them and expand them. Right. And share them, right? And that's going to be the dance that we're going to be charged with. Yeah, it's saying, at least from what I got, it's saying like not just kind of regurgitating what you've heard, but like applying it not, to, not only to yourself but also to somebody. Yeah, in other words, we're, we're hearing it, but are we just going to kind of repeat back? And, and sometimes we joke, and I think sometimes a little bit unfairly, about uh, gospel doctrine answers to gospel doctrine questions. But it is possible that we can get caught in that loop where we have quick answers that we haven't necessarily thought through, and they may not be serving us very well. Yeah? I think it, you know, it takes more effort and work. Oh, yeah. Just coming here and listening, you know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenge because, because, because it's just that. It, it's, it's, it takes effort on our part to, uh, when I remain some of the things you talked to my family, Right. In the application of the knowledge that we're getting, and that, uh, that's really where I want to go, thank you, is that we take this knowledge and we're learning, we're pushing back on some of the things, we're trying to understand it more clearly, but that means sometimes in the application process, what we say and what we do with it, I think, becomes really important. Being able to unglue ourselves from tradition that is not just there. <laughs> Un ungluing is a good term. Because, because we want to hang on... Um, Especially when guided by a prophet who is right. giving us all these new unglueings. Yeah, and, and you know what? Sometimes this newer knowledge is, is just more of our traditions that we have built in, uh, that we are... Uh, so for so long, the church's theology has been our history. Their favorite stories that we tell. Uh, Cindy and I were talking about kind of the, the uh, I don't know, a little bit of a sadness or something when we, when we start hearing about things like the breaking of the china and the Kirtland Temple to create the, the plaster as uh, not quite that. And it isn't exactly, that isn't exactly what happened. But that was a favorite story. John Taylor himself used to tell the story about at Carthage Jail how a bull, his watch stopped one of the bullets and that saved his life. That was his story. And it was only in the last couple of decades that we've looked at it and went, no, you know, uh, a, a slug that size would have shattered that watch. He actually, if you, he actually broke it falling up against the corner of the window pane and that chat. Well, those, those are stories that we have loved and cherished and we change them and we go, <sighs> you know, uh, the, the day that Cindy and I were married, we stood in front of the Salt Lake Temple and getting our pictures there and it's like, and I said to her, you know who's going to open this door? Yes, only the Savior will open that door to the Salt Lake Temple. Yes, I know. That's amazing, stuff like that. We related that to a friend of ours, and he says, now my, my father-in-law worked in the Salt Lake Temple presidency. He went in and out of that door all the time. <laughs> you know, 
wow, it's another cherished okay? <laughs> so we have, these, we have these stories, but the problem is when it grows into theology and it's the theology that we teach, even then we're going to push back and, it's, and we might get some pushback. Well, it's real, did he say, can you verify that? When you, really? Okay, so I wanna, I'm going to talk about at least two of those today that I hope that we have kind of been touching on. Um, but anyway, I, I, finally, with everything that we're doing, remember, we've got to come back and say, even in trying to expand our knowledge, we work with the Spirit to have it enlighten our mind uh, so that we understand better. Okay? So what have we been doing? Well, I think our challenge has been, as we've been looking at the New Testament, and it's really going to come to light next semester. We're going to be talking about the journeys of Paul, and, and there's a whole, and, and I will give you, here, so here's my teaser for next semester, right? Teaser. Um, there has been, within evangelical and traditional Protestant views, a way of looking at what Paul was saying, all through all of his writings. And just within the last decade especially, there is a brand new, it's called the NPP, it's the New Perspectives on Paul, uh, that is kind of growing and it is shaking up the way that people look at Paul and what he was teaching. And it's the difference between did Paul talk about faith or faithfulness. And what we're going to find is that what he was teaching we're going to be very comfortable with as Latter-day Saints. But you've got to understand Paul from a different perspective. Okay? Um, and, and so we're getting this, and, and the pushback against this new perspective in a lot of evangelical corners is pretty fierce. It's pretty fierce. But that's the battle we're going to talk about uh, next semester as we talk about Paul. Okay? But here's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to expand our understanding of sacred text. So here's basically our, here's how we do it. When we're reading scriptures, we're asking, who's the author? Who's the author of Hebrews? We have no idea. It's got Paul's name on it, but, but we don't know. Okay? What's the context of the writing? What, what was going on around that? Who, what, what was the author trying to tell the reader? Think about the difference about what Matthew was doing, setting up Jesus as king and the new Moses. And so we, we start with a babe in a basket, you know, and, and, the, and control over the elements. That's Matthew. Then we're talking about Mark. Mark's presenting a play where the disciples can't ever quite figure it out and disciples struggling. Okay? Those are two different narratives of the same basic story, but they're telling it from different perspectives to different audiences. And John's just the insider. He knows the inside stuff. But his, his job is to say to Israel, Jesus was God. And I'm going to write it to say Jesus was Messiah. Jesus was Jehovah. That's a different, they are, they are like artists drawing different pictures. Okay? So, what was the author trying to tell the reader? Who was the intended audience? In a second, we're going to talk about who the audience, who the initial audience for the Book of Mormon was. And I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that. Okay? Who is the intended audience? Okay, so how have we done it? Well, we looked at how have inspired inspired <laughs> inspired commentators, LDS and non-LDS, seen these passages. Especially when we get into biblical things, we have relied a lot on, on uh, BYU scholars. But we have also drank heavily from other authors like N.T. Wright and Kenneth Bailey and um, David Bentley Hart. There are a number of very prominent, inspired New Testament scholars. And, and as, I, as I take a look at those guys, 
uh, I'm always asking what non-LDS authors are LDS scholars looking at? That's one of my little guiding lights. I don't know that I'm not a New Testament scholar, but I want to know who uh, Thomas Wayment believes is a solid New Testament scholar. I'm using them as my guide to say, if you really like this guy, then I'm going to study that guy too, because you know more what you're looking at than I do. So what we've tried to do, some of the background that we've drawn into these classes, and we're going to do it a lot in, in when we get to Paul, is who are uh, LDS scholars at BYU and in other places, Maxwell Institute, who are they touting as the ones that really know what they're talking about? This is why we've added the Hobbit to the standard work. The Hobbit's in the standard work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tol Tolkien and has now been quoted, yeah. Um, now, here's, the, here's always the question. Is this understanding of this passage different from our traditional way of viewing it? Now, in the past, we've tended to say, well, these are the mysteries, and you stay away from the mysteries. Well, these aren't mysteries. These are, do we understand fundamentally what the atonement was, how it worked, and how salvation works for us? This isn't just which way does the pearly gate swing, right to left or up and down. Okay. Is this understanding different from our traditional way? If it's different than what we generally have heard, then two questions. One, if it's not traditional, how do I feel spiritually about it? As I listen with my heart, does this resonate? Does it make sense spiritually, even though it may be different? Okay. And then I think most importantly, and, and one of the goals of this class is this. If it's different, does it expand my understanding of the Savior's divine love and mission? As a result of seeing this scripture differently than the way that we have normally said it in gospel doctrine, do I have even greater appreciation for the Savior? Do I have a greater love for his mission? Do I understand better why he did what he did? then I think we're going to be on pretty firm foundation. Even if, what, even if you disciples of the second sort are spouting something different in a Relief Society class and they look at you like, what? 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 Really? Where'd you get that? Okay. Do, we have a chance, I think, to teach. Um, now, why it matters. Why is it mattering that we see things differently? I think the healing power of the good news, properly understood and applied, brings greater peace. Um, in discussions that I have had with some of you, and I'll just kind of do this generally, but I've had this discussion a few times now with members of the class, and then sometimes my clients, but members of the class, and if we start to understand more powerfully the doctrine of the atonement, and the saving grace that he has right through past the resurrection, now suddenly we're not so freaked out if we have family members that leave the church. Because we can turn it more comfortably over to the Savior and love them and care about them and let the Savior do his work. Rather than being worried and freaked out that if, if I don't have them saved and back attending by the time I die or they die, we're gonna be, they're going to be in a different place in the eternities. And I don't want to use that as an example here to say, okay? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's critical that we understand better because I think it'll bring us greater peace. There are doctrines that we've been carrying in the gospel for a long time that are kind of Protestant. And it, and it has a Protestant strain to it that we maybe didn't understand. So, so far, does that make sense? Okay, let me, so it's like, what's he talking about? Let me give you two examples. Here's the first one. I think, I think a new understanding, and we're going to talk a lot more about this next semester, but, but an example of this would be how do we define what sin is? What is sin? And how does God see sin? 
Now, traditionally, from a gospel doctrine, traditional reading, we tend to see sin this way. That sin is a crime against laws and commandments. And we've talked about this a little bit before in the past. But I want to kind of refresh us a little bit and put it in a little bit more succinctly. We talk about the fact that sin is the breaking of a commandment and it's a crime. And, and who is it that, that uh, breaks laws? What do we call those guys? Criminals. So anybody that is going to have the law taught to them and break the law is a criminal. And if you've got these criminals, then the problem is, what do we do with criminals? We have to be punished, right? Criminals deserve to be punished. They have to be punished. Otherwise, justice is not served. Right? So if, if, uh, if justice is not served, commandments have been broken, but we realize we don't have the ability to take care of the, the sentence ourselves, then what has to happen? Justice demands punishment. Who is it that is punished? We are. We are, but, in, but in, the, in the context of the atonement, we tend to say what? Jesus was punished for us. Remember the old story uh, that gets told a lot, he took my licking for me. The, the, the kid that doesn't have uh, enough to eat, and so he's going to get his whipping, and he steals some food. And, and so in the, old, the, the, he, the, the older kid shows up, and the teacher beats that, the older kid. He took my licking for me. That's this. That is that Jesus took our licking for us, and so because we were so bad and criminal and we couldn't pay enough for it, then he's going to... Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to push back on this one. Okay. Uh, so, and this actually has its roots in, uh, in pagan teaching where an angry God would demand justice. And so an angry God... This is where we throw virgins in volcanoes and, and torture torture his son for us. And, and from a Calvinistic sort of way, this is, that's the thinking. We have to save a wretch like me. We are wretches. We are, you know, King, King Benjamin touches on us when we say we're less than the dust of the earth. We, we're bad people and we will always be bad. And the term is imputed righteousness. That, that God is going to place in us righteousness that doesn't exist in us because we are of the flesh. Is that, is that deep? Okay. Let me give you an alternative reading on this. And this, so, so believe it or not, this is, this is the God that we see often in the Book of Mormon because that's where they were. That's where the Nephites were. Let me tell you the God of, the, new, of uh, the Pearl of Great Price. The book of Abraham and the book of Moses. The plain and precious truths that, G, that Joseph brought. This is, this is the God of the Pearl of Great Price. And that is, sin is a wounding. That when we sin, when, we break, when, when commandments are broken, the result is not an angry God... The result is separation from God. We are separated from Him. And is God angry at that point? No. Moses 7 says, what, what does this God do in Moses when, when, when commandments are broken? He weeps. He's not angry because you, went, because you broke the law. He's weeping because your actions have pulled you farther from me. I love you. I want you back. This is the God of the, of the prodigal son. Who isn't demanding that he pay everything back before he brings him back into full fellowship. This is the one that just cries and weeps that he's back. And wants him home. Now. 
That is the God that Joseph Smith was restoring that had been lost over the Middle Ages. So as a result of that wounding, uh, what we're looking for instead, if, 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 if under this one, the, kind of the Calvinistic way of looking at things, we broke a commandment, we should be punished, we're criminals, and we're wretches, and we don't deserve anything, because we're always sinning, we're just bad guys. Jesus was saying that when you sin, you're wounded. And what does that make us? <laughs> Those that have been hurt and wounded, that makes us, th this is the Good Samaritan. That makes us people, and what do we need? If you're wounded, what do you need? Do you need, need justice and, and, to, and to be paying off a fine that you can't pay for and somebody else has to pay for it for you? When we're wounded, what do we need? Healing. healing. And who's going to provide the healing? The divine love of the Savior reconciles us back to Him. Now, that, that, there's one way of looking at this. And this is what you're going to find. This is the new perspective on Paul. This is what Paul was teaching all along. And that is a God who loves us and cares about us and was extending this reconciliation to the Gentiles, not just the Jews, to everybody. Yeah. And Paul experienced it personally. He did. As bad as I was, he called me. He brought me in, and now my job is to go out and bring people home. Right. Okay? All right. How's that feel? Okay? Different? Okay. Let me give you one more, and it's one that we've talked about before, disciples of the second sort. What happens after this life? Um... Let's go to, let's go to, and I've mentioned this before, yeah. So I just wanted to point out, the adversary is aware of when we're starting to get on the right track, and, but he, he wants to take one step out of the thing. And so, you know, in the plan of salvation, there's a creation, there's a fall, and there's a redemption. And he doesn't care if we talk about the creation and the fall, but he doesn't want us talking about the redemption. No, that's right, we're good on... He wants to wipe out. And in this one... He doesn't care if we understand that sin is a wounding. He just doesn't want us to understand the healing part. Yeah. He just wants us to stay wounded. That's right. His plan is get wounded, stay wounded. Right. As opposed to the Savior, get wounded, get But wounded. if the twist is that you're not wounded, if the twist is you broke a commandment, you're a criminal, what do criminals do? They hide from the police. <laughs> Criminals hide their stuff. Criminals don't want to be found. Criminals are just going to stay away. Yeah. Well, you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Yes, yes. Quick, hide. Yes, in other words, that, that's what criminals do. And, and, and so I'm, I'm shamed by the things that I did, so I'm not gonna, I don't want to stand in front of God. Quick, run away. And he created shame. The first time shame came into the world was through Lucifer. In a healing context, when we're wounded, what do we do? Get me to the hospital. I want to go. I want to be where I'm going to be healed. And, and, and I'm going, and in the process of coming, I'm wounded in the process of coming back. Think about the prodigal son again. Here's the prodigal son, and he is now reconciled with his with his father. The, the idea is to bring us back together, not hide us. Okay? Yeah. Sometimes there's pain in getting healing. Oh, yeah. Even if people understand it, sometimes they still want to avoid it. Like our four-year-old granddaughter had to go to the hospital this weekend, and yes, yeah, she had to do that to save her life, but it was painful while she was there. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is the doctors are always going to tell you, uh, this might pinch a little. <laughs> <laughs> I think people who are wounded because of sin, 
also feel that way. It's painful for them to come yeah. and see what they feel they're not. Because they don't see what the rest of us are also going through. I, I, was, I was working with uh, one of my clients a while back, and, and he had gone through, and he was struggling with this whole idea, because he'd done some things that he shouldn't have, and the bishop had him on kind of a probationary basis. And while he was on probation, there's certain things he can't do. And he was talking about repentance. And, he, and it just seemed like it was so long, he's not going to be able to do this and that and everything. And he was really kind of discouraged. And, I had to, I, and so we started walking through this. I said, you're wounded. When did you repent? And he says, well, I guess it's not for like a year from now. And I said, no. <laughs> no. The repentance happened now, man. You've done it. How do you feel? I've, I'm sorry for what I've done. Broken car, con contract spit. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've repented. The Lord has forgiven you. So why would the bishop have you wait a year before you get to... What's the purpose of that? Practice. It's practice, and it's kind of like physical therapy, <laughs> you know. It's like, yes, the, the surgery has happened already. You have repented. Good for you. Now you have a year to kind of work closely with your bishop to change some habits and things that you do to, to make that possibility so that it doesn't repeat. But it isn't like the Lord is holding off on his forgiveness. You've been forgiven. It happened the moment that you turned to him. Now, there's some pain involved. There's going to be some, I, as, I'm, as I'm working and trying to change my life and I'm working with my bishop to change my habits and stuff, yeah, there's some uncomfortableness there. But it's not about forgiveness and it's not about the atonement. The atonement already happened. You join the church, you're in the kingdom, you're there. Now he had hope. He walked out of there a lot more hopeful and he's been feeling better. So... Healing. Right. I've got to say my husband. <laughs> it takes a long time. Right. Yeah, sometimes they're just as a process. We would like it to be quicker. But there isn't there hope though. If you're if you're hurting and you don't know why, or you're hurting and you do know why, when you've had surgery, at least they can say to you, within the next three months or something, you're gonna feel better. And each day you'll feel so it's hope. You feel this movement and it makes it makes it possible, right? Yeah. It's also a process of purification during that period of time. And I forget what uh, authority you mentioned in this book that for us to have the, the peace and happiness, that we have to, there's got to be some sorrow, and, and then you have yeah. the peace and the happiness that follows it. Yeah. Yeah, there is that sorrow. When rec and, and if it's the sorrow of, I'm a criminal, that's one thing. But if it's a sorrow that says, my behavior distanced me from God, distanced, distanced me from peace. Tom, think about Thomas, for, uh, and we could talk about this. Thomas, the, the, the apostle uh, who wasn't there when the Savior shows up the first time, and they all have joy because they have seen the resurrected Christ. He wasn't there. He didn't show up. Okay? Now, he's there a week later, but his joy was delayed for a week because he didn't show up. So he could have been happier sooner, but his behavior delayed joy. Well, sometimes in the things that we do, we delay joy. We delay being happy because we're stubborn. Or we're, we're just determined to hang on to our favorite sins. But anyway. Yeah. And, and the joy and the blessings that they could be receiving sooner. We, I, I think we mentioned this last time. In the history of the scriptures, we have one, one man who got to be like God for a few minutes. Got to f be like God, feel like God, see what God sees. And that was Enoch. Moses 7. Congratulations, you get to be like God. And the result of Enoch being like God was what? He got to weep like God. He got to hurt like God. 
That's Godhood. It's not about power and control. It's about this compassion that is so huge that when our kids struggle or something like that, he, he, he knows the pain that they're going to go through because they have separated themselves from God. Following up on that, I, I just had the thought that I think when we suffer pain, we also develop greater empathy. I mean, nothing tears me up more than to see a little granddaughter or grandson fall and bust their lip or, you know. Yeah. Especially after you told them not to run or, or, you know, don't do that or, and they do it anyway. Yeah, and it's hard and, we, and we're sad for them. It isn't like, ha ha, you know, you did, you did a dumb thing. You feel it, but you have empathy because you felt pain and you know. Yeah. And we're really trying to get, that, and, and at the end of the day, isn't that what the commandments are? It, the Lord has given us laws and commandments, not because he's on a power trip, but because he keeps saying, you're going to hurt if you do that. <laughs> Don't run in here. You're going to fall. It'll hurt. Don't run in the street. And then we do it anyway. And, and it isn't like we're gloating over that. We weep like God does. So that's, that's a different view of atonement. Okay? And, and, it, and again, it's what Paul taught. And we're, we're, especially when we get into Romans. You're going to love Romans. Love Romans. Okay, but anyway. Okay, so here's another example. Uh, Mosiah, King Benjamin, um, makes an interesting statement. I want to mention this because I think it behooves us as we start looking at the Book of Mormon. I think we've got to have our disciples of the second sort hat on when we read the Book of Mormon. Every man shall be judged according to his works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And if they be evil, they are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abominations, into a state of misery and endless torment, from whence they can no more return. Therefore, mercy could have no claim on them no more forever. And their torment is as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose smoke ascendeth up forever and ever. Would you have any problem reading King Benjamin's address in a Methodist church? How about, how about in a evangelical church? Could you, could you read that in an evangelical church? Sure you could. I mean, they'd be all right with that? Sure. That sound familiar? Okay. One of our sons happens to be going to a different church. Yeah. Said about faith, but he says you still have to have good works. And, and then it shut him down, right? No more, no more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, like I said, we're going to talk about works, but but there now. So here, here's it. Now, let me ask an uncomfortable question: How much do we believe that? It's the Book of Mormon. We love the Book of Mormon. Is our found, one of our foundational texts. Well, if you know you'd be happy if you were with Heavenly Father and you know you can't be with Him. Right. Isn't that the torment? Well, except that mercy could have no claim on them no more forever. <laughs> that doesn't sound but they're choosing not to be there. Okay. But that doesn't sound like an infinite and eternal atonement. Doesn't, does it? Okay, now, let me, let me take us about three steps back. Who was the audience for this address? There's two main audiences that I can think of. First of all, who? The Nephites. Okay, this give you an idea where they are? Because this would say, after this life, how many places are there to go? Heaven and hell. There's a judgment... You get judged. If you make the cut, you go to heaven. You don't make the cut. You go to everlasting burnings. And mercy can't get you forever. Okay? So the first group that he's being preached to is the Nephites that are sitting there at the temple on the day that King Benjamin's given the address. Gives you an idea where they are. 
The Lord says later in the Doctrine and Covenants, yeah, I had to teach it this way. This is what, this is what they knew. I think that's section one. Who's the other audience for this? Who is the ne- After the Nephites, who is the next audience for King Benjamin's address? Are you including the people of Zerah? Nope. Nope. They, they, we don't know that they had it. Who was the next audience? Joseph Smith's era. Exactly. It was that first generation of the church. Who was the first generation of the church? Where did they come from church-wise? They were all... Not only were they primarily because of New England, not only were they Protestant, they were heavily Calvinist. God is wonderful and great and man is nothing. Man is, is less of the dust of the earth. We are grateful when God does anything to us because we are so bad and God is so great. The gulf between man and God is huge. That's Calvinistic. Okay? But they were the first in 1829, 1830, 1831. That was the first audience reading the Book of Mormon. Now, two years later we're going to get Section 76. Now, the vision, those of you who were in it when we were talking about church history, when the vision came out, Section 76, what did Joseph Smith tell missionaries about the vision? Section 76. Because they were getting copies of it as fast as they could go. Do what? Don't use it. Don't do it. Why? They're not ready for it. You're going to give them 76 where it's not just heaven and hell. And, and one guy went off in England, up in Preston, in my old mission area, uh, and, he, and he, you know, in a big meeting, he breaks out the vision. Let me read you what Joseph Smith just received. And the, and the missionaries were thrown out of Preston for teaching that garbage because it's heaven and hell. It's not more than that. Okay, this was written for the first generation of the church. This part, yeah. As casting their pearls. Swine. Yeah, and pearls and swine that weren't ready for this, because it was said if section seventy six would have been the first revelation that the first generation of the church came coming from Joseph Smith and not the Book of Mormon, would the church have survived? No, it would not have. It had to be Book of Mormon first. King Benjamin, heaven and hell. And then even two years later, it was rough sledding even when the vision came out. They had to do some selling on that thing. Okay? So, the, the other, the next gen, the, that's the next audience on this is going to be that first generation of the church that would join the church. So why don't we have an issue with this right now? <laughs> Hope. We just kind of look over and say, okay, this is spirit, prison spirit, uh, Oh, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Oh, wait, there's more. Section 76. And then then ask your question. And again, we saw the terrestrial world. These are they who are the honorable men of the earth who were blinded by the craftiness of men. These are they who receive of his glory but not of his fullness. We okay with that one? Anybody been to the temple lately? <laughs> Who are we doing the temple work for? Would some of those ancestors have been honorable men of the earth who were blinded by the craftiness of men? And so in your sealing process, do you say you're going to receive of his glory but not of his fullness? No. No. And this is another one, Stephanie. We, we, We read right over this and we go, well, okay. What's the problem here? It doesn't match. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay? It doesn't. Okay? But 
Who was this written to? The saints of 1832. And even then they struggled with this mightily. But this was at least some, the idea to go from heaven and hell to having to, to go into Paul's third heaven and they were actually seeing more was a struggle then. But at least there's something that says, okay, there is not everybody's going to make it to the heaven. Th- oh, we can maybe move the heaven and hell to the celestial kingdom and maybe hell is some form of one of the glories or something, you know. Okay, but that's a jump. Theologically, that's a jump two years later, but still a jump. So, years ago, I was doing some um, family research. My great-great-grandmother could join the church. Uh And she left some records, and she only did part of her family's work. And I was so confused. So why she did part? Say that again a little louder. So do the work for only your ancestors that you think would join the church. What, what year would that have been? So that was back in like 1860. Yep. Yes. Right. It's exactly right. And it is 20 years before the revelation in 1894 from Wilford Woodruff who says, be sealed to your family. Be sealed. We have been doing the temple wrong for 50 years. That's, that's one of those greatest moments in general conference history. Stop being sealed to Joseph Smith. Be sealed to your dad. What, be, uh, well, we don't know if they'll accept the gospel. So there had to be a theological jump. What would Wilfred Woodruff would have said that, to that, do you think? Because we don't know if they're going to accept the gospel. So we now, now it's not just procedure. It's not just administrative. This is what we're doing. In order to do that, we have to get a, a theological back to that. Maybe that the Savior is our judge. Yes, and, and who's going to accept the gospel? Everyone. Yeah, in other words, they're going to accept the gospel. But that's a theological difference. We have to make that jump. Okay, so, yeah. It's because we're not there yet. Right. But that doesn't mean that, that we, but we're going to do their work for them. Right? Because we expect that, that they are going to accept. But it was also built on the idea coming out of Nauvoo that we are all welding links chained together. And if you're going to hook your star to somebody who doesn't accept the gospel, well, you've just doomed your whole Line. It was a very literal, very literal kind of way of looking at it. You don't seal yourself to somebody who won't accept the gospel because you and your kids and your grandkids are going to be not make it to the celestial kingdom because there's a break in the link. It's just that, that mentality that, that Wilford Woodruff in 1894 had to suddenly make the, the jump on. Okay? Now, what got him going on it? Well, I think it's this moment, and then, so now then I need to. So we need to frame section seventy-six against further light and knowledge that comes to a prophet in response to a question. So here's the ongoing revelation, and it's this moment. In his dream, Wilford Woodruff, there appeared to him Benjamin Franklin, for whom he had performed important ceremonies in the house of God. This distinguished patriot according to his dream, sought further blessings of the temple of God at the hands of his benefactor. Remember, he'd, all, he'd been baptized for all of them, right? Okay, Benjamin Franklin comes back. President Woodruff wrote, I spent some time with him, Benjamin Franklin, and we talked over the temple ordinances which had been administered for Franklin and others. He wanted more work done for him than I had already done. don't just get me baptized for the dead I promised him it would be done I awoke and made up my mind to receive further blessings for Benjamin Franklin and George Washington he had them ordained high priests 
Now, do they fit? Does Benjamin Franklin and George Washington fit with maybe with Gandhi and Mother Teresa? That we would say they are the honorable men and women of the earth who were blinded by the craftiness of man and should go to the terrestrial kingdom. What do we believe? You can be totally shocked to find Benjamin Franklin running around the celestial kingdom? No. He's there. What about Mother Teresa? There. C.S. Lewis? <laughs> Duh. We just don't make judgments. We're no. Said this many times. We don't make decisions for things beyond the veil. No. We've been told what to do. We right. Have a, there's enough to do with what we've been told. To right. Do. And the talk that President Oaks gave about trust in the Lord a few minutes in the last conference about you know the problems people were wondering if they're where they would live and all that. Yeah. And, that. and the thing that someone said: worry about yourself. Right. But in terms of worrying about myself, still, if I understand that the best I can do, and I've had, I'm telling, I've had people sitting in my office say, uh, either I'm gay or I'm single, and I'm going to be really comfortable in the terrestrial kingdom. And I'm going, where? Theologically, where did you get that? But the, part of the problem is, is that if we don't understand some of the theological stuff behind it, people can live in pain and hurt and sadness way, way too long and get discouraged and then leave the church and we didn't know what it was that made them leave. And you do have a flip side where, like there's people that I minister to that are not active in the church. And I'm hesitant to say these things because I think they'll just keep putting off going to church if I tell them. You know what I'm saying? You, you can wait till the next slide. <laughs> Oh, great. If I give you an out, like I give to my kids an out, it's a slippery slope with us, I'll just wait till the other side. Wasn't that President Nelson's comments in the last conference? Okay. Uh, and I, and I, I agree with him on that, but I think we have to be careful because there's a little bit of Nephiteism in there, like King Benjamin. Like, I got to really scare the crud out of him. <laughs> I got I got to scare them into doing the right things right now. Otherwise, they're going to think there's a. Now, I do believe though for them, if if it's about you got to keep the commandments or you're going to hell, that's one thing. But if we're talking about a loving God who weeps and wants to nurture them and draw them close, and there is greater joy if they will understand this God, I don't think we have to scare them. I don't think we have to scare them. We, have to, we can allow them to know the, the God that Joseph Smith revealed. This, this God we're talking about is the plain and precious truths that were taken from the earth, especially during the time of Augustine and the Council of, Ni Council of Nicaea and all those. This God that is, rules Calvinistically with blood and horror. And we're talking about this is a God who loves and weeps. Yeah. So, why, if there's not going to be a terrestrial and a telestial kingdom? Well, I'm not saying that. It says there is. I don't know what, I don't know what there's going to be in the terrestrial kingdom. Here, here's what I know and here's what I believe. That is that. Here's what I believe. <laughs> Anybody who's not in the celestial kingdom is not there because they chose to be there, not to be there for whatever reason. I don't care who you are on the planet. Give Jesus a million years with you. And I think you're home. I do. Yeah. I think as a parent who has children that have left the church. Yeah. It has opened my mind a lot more how Heavenly Father feels. And my love for them is even greater than what it was before. True. I want them with us. Thank you. And I guess that's where, that's where I want to kind of get to, and then we'll, then we'll close here. I want, if we, uh, these gospel principles understood, I think A, will bring us greater peace, and B, I think it changes the way that we interact with other people. 
I was listening to a great talk this weekend uh, by another author that we're going to use a lot next semester, Patrick Mason. Patrick Mason talked about the fact that sometimes in the church we have to be careful about othering. <laughs> othering. That is, we create others. And we had a tendency to go, I am the noble birthright, I am of the believing blood, and you're not. <laughs> there are others, Israel, and other people, Gentiles. Others, righteous, others, you guys are going to hell. <laughs> Rather than this loving, caring, we're all... The, I have nothing in common with people living in Ghana. And what happens the minute that they're baptized? <laughs> they're, they're my people. <laughs> I've never met them. They have different customs. They speak different languages. And the minute that they, that they recognize and they step into the kingdom, they are, they are us. They're part of us. And we need to look at the whole world as us. They're just dry Mormons. <laughs> just not there yet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and give them the time and space and allow God to work with them in their own timetable. I think it changes our behavior to other people. I really do. And it doesn't matter whether it's another religion or whether they're gay or whatever. I just think it changes how we love. If, we, if we're trying to be like God. So, um, the, the last line here from, from President Woodruff, this appearance, therefore, in his dream of Franklin was to give him a satisfying conclusion that he at least received joyfully the blessings that came to him from the ordinances of the Lord's house. So, anyway. So, that said, that is our, I think that's our challenge as we roll into the end of this semester. And as we look forward to next semester, which is our job is to be disciples of the second sort. To be able to understand, take in new light and knowledge. Enough that we be able to change our behavior in the way that we treat and interact with other people. And then we're going to have to have those moments. Uh, and, and I will finish with this. Um, one of the voices that I love to listen to is uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens. Uh, they are, they are uh, very prominent at the moment, voices that I think are really having a major impact in the church. And I was listening to a talk by Fiona, who was talking about the fact that sometimes, she, they said, how do you sit in a gospel doctrine class and hear some of the stuff that you hear <laughs> and not, like, blow up? And, and here, here's what she said. She says, I do it two ways. Number one, she says, I have to be involved I have to be an involved saint. I, she says, I have emotional capital with my ward. I show up at, when, when somebody's moving. I, I, I take in meals. I'm, I'm part of the fabric of the ward. They are, they're, I'm part of the community. I have emotional capital. Number two, when I hear somebody preaching something that I think is a little bit off beam, she says, I take them aside, maybe in the hallway, and we have a, we have a discussion. I'm not going to do it in front of a class or do it obnoxiously in a way that would embarrass them. And I think that that's, and that's my challenge to you as disciples of the second sort. As you gain greater knowledge and understanding through your study and efforts and you begin to understand things a little bit more clearly and you hear things talked about in a sacrament meeting talk or gospel doctrine, stuff like that, that may open up an opportunity for you to have a private discussion with somebody, kind of see where they are, suggest some things, and, 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 and help. But I think we need to do it carefully and lovingly. I know that I've been guilty of being obnoxious in classes. <laughs> and I've had to work really hard at not just being silent but not being angry. <laughs> that I have to lovingly hear what's going on and then have private discussions with people and we can have a good discussion about helping them maybe see some things that they haven't been exposed to yet. So, Anyway. Any final comments on that before we wrap it up and have a prayer on that great food that's sitting back there? Yeah. Uh, the, the, really good question. Uh, there's a, we get into the Gospel of Paul and the doctrines of Paul, there's some, um, there's some terrific stuff. I'm going to lean a lot on N.T. Wright. Uh, has some great stuff. Thomas Wayment 
has written uh, a book on uh, Paul and his travelings and Paul. Um, uh, so has uh, Thomas, let's see. I'll t- tell you what, one of the first classes I'll say, here, here's the foundational text that we're looking at because this is a whole different approach to that. But there are wonderful non-LDS authors that the, the BYU scholars are drawing on and synthesizing with that we're going to try and draw. Yeah. I would just say that, that as we apply ourselves diligently and try and learn by faith things that have been a little less plain, we need to be prepared to understand that as we try and share them with others, yeah. there are a lot of people who won't pick up on what we're picking up on. No. And there's reasons why. Frequently it's because they're not prepared to abide by the knowledge and the light the Lord hides it from them. So don't think just because you've learned something and, and you try and explain it to somebody else that they're going to be under the burden of that knowledge. Because yeah. the Spirit confirms it to them, that's not going to be part of their standard of judgment. Yeah, and, and, and when we do it lovingly, then it doesn't going to be like a... I'm a multi-level marketing person who has a new thing to sell, and I, those that don't get it don't get it. It's, it's not, so that, that creates an othering kind of thing. This is, uh, through my studying, I've learned some things that I would love to share, and if you're not in that place at the moment, that's terrific. You'll be where you are. But there, but there are some other things to learn. But it does, does place a little bit of a burden, I think. And it's not an elite thing. It's just simply, when you know something and you understand deeply, man, you want to help others, especially those that are struggling. So I hope we can do that. Yeah. When will we be reconvening? Oh, good question. What is the second what is the second Monday in January? Sixth. Thirteenth. Okay. That sound good? Yeah. Let's let's start it on we'll we'll start on the thirteenth. And, and we're going to start with, like I said, we're going to be doing the journeys of Paul, and that'll take us into some of opening up Romans and Corinthians and, Ephes- and Ephesians, things like that. So. All right. Uh, thank you for this semester. Uh, thank you for your uh, knowledge and study and, and the spirit that you bring. That makes all the difference. And uh, I'm grateful for you in, in this holiday season, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you. And, and the food? Father in heaven, we come before thee with gratitude.